Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Tristan Harris. Tristan is the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Humane Technology. Hey, Jim, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you on. Some interesting stuff we're going to be talking about. Tristan was the first design ethicist at Google. We'll talk about what that is a little later. He's an expert on how technology is steering us all. Tristan has spent over a decade understanding the subtle psychological forces in play in our online world. And he's the co-host of the podcast, Your Undivided Attention. In various writings and sayings, you've said that your experience as a magician, as a younger person, have helped you inform your perspective about the online world. Could you tell us a little bit about your magic days and what that perspective has provided? Yeah, I always start with magic because if you start by looking at what technology is doing, the the common metaphor is people think, well, it's all about how we're using technology, that we're the ones using it. And I, the, the premise of, I think, the rest of the conversation we'll have today is really more about how is technology influencing us? And the reason I go to the magic metaphor so often in my, my childhood is it's about recognizing asymmetries of power, like an asymmetric advantage. And that's what a magician essentially has over you, is there's a sense of they know something about your mind that you don't know about yourself, because if you did know that about yourself, the magic trick wouldn't work. And what's especially interesting to me about magic is that the universality of the things that a magician knows about all human minds and the fact that even a nuclear physicist can easily be fooled by a magician. Rather, it actually doesn't really matter what domain of expertise or PhD you have. Magic is about a subtler layer of human vulnerabilities. Think of them like the zero-day vulnerabilities or the back doors on the human mind in terms of cause and effect reasoning, in terms of attention, in terms of misdirection. Uh, And that's obviously the kind of basic stuff. But as you go more advanced, there's a whole long list of uh, psychological features. And I, I think one last thing there is that magicians are kind of like the first applied psychologists, because way before we had an official fields of psychology, they were figuring these things out. Um, And they didn't even name the principles, but they had this whole kind of library of things that they were aware of and started to, to exploit. Makes perfect sense. You've also mentioned working with the famous, or maybe it's infamous, Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab. Uh, Who are they and what impact do they have on our situation and on your perspectives? So at Stanford, I studied computer science. And so I have a typical computer science background, but I was mostly interested in the psychology, cognitive science sort of dimensions. There's actually a major at Stanford called Symbolic Systems that, you know, a lot of alumni, uh, famous alumni like Reed Hoffman and Scott Forstall, the guy who invented the iPhone, were actually in that program that I was kind of more oriented to. And part of that program, there's there's a class by this one professor named BJ Fogg and from his lab called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab, where they essentially took everything we knew about the field of persuasion, influence, social psychology, Robert Cialdini's influence, slot machine design, clicker training for dogs, click, click, get the dog to you know, eat the thing, reward it. And he applied all those disciplines, all those domains of expertise into, hey, what if we were to embed that in technology? 
you know, could technology be uh, an influence over your attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, habits? And you know, I, that class, there's a whole history we can go into there, but uh, the founders of Instagram were in that class. Many of the early alumni that went on to join the growth teams at the early tech companies, Uber, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, many people went on. And because it gave a tool set, how to build more and more engaging products. And I just want to name really quickly that the professor BJ Fogg is often vilified, I think, in, incorrectly, because he warned the FTC about the dangers of persuasive technology and where this could go back in the late 90s. I think it was 1996. And he has always tried to apply persuasive technology for, for good. Um, things like world peace. He actually had a project called Peace Dot, which was like peace.facebook.com, peace.google.com, where each tech company would ask, how could it be persuading the world towards world peace? We can go into these topics if you, if you want to. There's, there's a lot of detail here. Yeah, I think the takeaway here, and that's sort of something everyone needs to understand, is that these are deeply designed systems. It's funny you mentioned slot machines. The first time this issue of deeply cognitive science-informed technology was when a business friend of mine went to work as the COO of the third largest slot machine company in the United States. Oh, really? Yeah, he did. Yeah, this was in the 90s. We had uh, dinner, I don't know, a year later, and he was, you know, telling me all about what he was doing. And he told me they had, this is the third largest slot machine company. They had 200 PhDs on staff. And he said they all came from the disciplines where people are basically torturing rats and make them do various things. I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, you know, what a scary thing that the, you know, really sharp PhDs are tuning the finest details of slot machines to increase their addictive potential. And then my second touch point on this was last year, I uh, published an essay called Regaining Our Cognitive Sovereignty about how you know people have become addicted to smartphones in particular. And one of the data points I dug up when I was writing that was I went to the Facebook internal job board, or I guess publicly facing job board, and typed in psychology. And 708 openings at Facebook had the word psychology in the job description. Mm. And so again, that was, aha, you know, these people makes perfect sense. If I was them, I'd be doing the same thing. It's trying to bring in serious talent that understands how the human mind works and uses that insight to make these products way more effective at pushing our buttons than we'd have any idea. And it's important to note that this is a new, unique phenomenon. I mean, you know, the hammer that might be sitting in your shed does not have a thousand PhDs behind it trying to figure out how do they get you to use the hammer in the particular way. Even your telephone back in the 1970s didn't have a thousand PhDs behind it trying to figure out how to use your social psychology and do experiments on rats to figure out how to get them to talk through the telephone, right? So they, these were tools. And so what's really changed, and this is why we really focus on this aspect of persuasive technology as what we're accusing as the problem is the degree of asymmetry you know the, the fact that there's a thousand engineers behind the screen who know a lot more about our psychology than we know about ourselves well i think you're certainly right about the hammer but i'm going to push back just a little bit and this is a theme i'm going to push on a couple of times to distinguish between what was going on in the previous generation and the current generation there was a technology before online that was amazingly psychologically informed both from academic psychology and in practice and that is tv advertising in fact advertising in 
in general, but particularly TV advertising. These things were amazingly expensively produced, still are, I assume, and they did all kinds of tests, including EEGs, etc. So it's not like this has not been something we've confronted before. Well, this is what always comes up. I feel like I've, I've spent a decade now having the conversation of, but haven't we always had propaganda, TV, marketing, advertising, et cetera? What could be so alarming or bad about what we have now? It really is a new unprecedented situation. I, I think that, you know, if someone was telling you about an atomic bomb, but you were already aware of regular bombs, they said, well, this bomb is just a bigger bomb. They didn't show you like an entire city getting obliterated. We'd say it just sounds like it's a bigger bomb than the other bombs. Maybe there's nothing new here. And, you know, in this case with atomic bombs, you can actually visually see the just stunning degree of exponential damage uh, and scope that you can create. Whereas in technology, I think the degree of advancement in the persuasion capacity is not in the visible domains. You can't use your eyeball to see how big it is, right? And we don't have intuition for what billions of people being influenced by these things uh, really looks like. If we wanted to slow it down and say there's at least four major distinct uh, things that are that are different. Usually you're supposed to say there's three things because three is so much easier to remember, but let's go with four. The first is the intimacy and pervasiveness of the infrastructure. So TV, you know, you used to have to watch TV, you choose to watch it. It was in your living room, maybe it's on periodically, but you know, an advertisement has to reach you through a channel you happen to be watching, but it's not like built into the fabric of your walls in your home. Whereas the smartphone, we check 150 times a day. We have 2.7 billion people using Facebook. That's about one and a half times the size of Christianity in terms of a psychological footprint. Uh, we wake up with the thing ever since, you know, we turn off our alarm in the morning till the time we go to bed at night. So that first characteristic is the sort of intimate infrastructure uh, aspect, the pervasiveness. The second is the social persuasive element. One of the things I learned at the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab is how much more powerful persuasion can be if you can control uh, the social psychological cues that people are using to make sense of what's true or what's real or what to do. And if you can say that, well, 300 of your friends liked or shared this, or you have five people watching you as you're doing this action right now, their little eyeballs are on the screen. The social persuasiveness is very powerful. And this gets into things like the ash conformity experiments and, and so on. Uh, the third aspect is AI. And this is probably the one that's hardest for the brain to kind of intuit. But it's that there is a the ability to make and run predictions about what you're going to do and what would cause you to do something. You know, every single time you use YouTube and you, you're saying, I'm going to watch this one video and then I'm going to be done, you know, and then you end up watching for two hours and you're like, what the hell just happened to me? You know, I fell into a YouTube trance and you say, well, I guess I should have had more self-control. But what was really going on is when you hit play on a YouTube video, there was an AI on the other side of the screen. You know, you activate all of Google's multi-billion dollar computing infrastructure and it wakes up a little avatar voodoo doll version of you. It does, you know, a calculation on a hundred million different recommended videos it could show you next. And it makes a prediction about which one I could show you that would cause you to stay here. And so we don't really think about the unfairness of this fight between our paleolithic brain on one side of the screen and then the biggest supercomputing infrastructure in the world 
on the other side. The last thing I'll mention is that AI is used for personalization. So the fourth characteristic is uh, the degree that each of us get our own Truman show or the split testing works at a micro-targeted level. So instead of billboards or advertising on TV where you're getting a sort of broadcast capacity, you don't actually know who's watching what except to some coarse grain levels. This is now fine grain levels, micro-targeted precision, intimate access, pervasive, social, and AI-based. Indeed, indeed. I I was involved in some businesses in the 80s, 90s, and even into the early double aughts where direct mail was a big part of the program. And, you know, direct mail was slow, a bit opaque, and very costly. If we'd had these kinds of tools back then, oh my God, could we have done some stuff, right? Not that we didn't do too bad with our direct mail, but you're absolutely right. In combination, these four things put us into a qualitatively different regime. That's exactly right. Yeah. Interesting. You talk about the YouTube, um, what do you call it, role? I, frankly, I don't. I watch YouTube only one video following a link somebody sent me or something I found on Twitter. I never just sit there and let the damn thing run. But I understand a lot of people do. And, uh, you know, one issue that you brought up for sure and other people have as well is that these algorithms, not that they're aimed to suck people into extremism, but because of the way our cognitive systems operate, we respond more powerfully to extremism. And therefore, even though it's not an independent variable, the results of the YouTube algorithms continuous role thing can be pulling people towards a more extreme perspective. Yeah. What do you say about that? Yeah. Well, I'd like to go even stronger and say that the regime of social platforms and YouTube and so on that we have basically jacked into the brains of 2.7 billion people is completely dismantling our information environment. It has poisoned the information ecology. It's like the Flint water supply for our brains. And that might sound like extreme statements, but I hope we get into defending why that's actually the case, because I, I want people to not see this as a conversation between, you know, are we addicted to YouTube or are we not? Did it get me to watch one more video or did it not? It's more about the whole grand set of sort of climate change like effects it creates in the social fabric. But to answer your question specifically, so, you know, we have at the Center for Humane Technology, a bunch of ex-tech whistleblowers who are building some of these different systems. Um, And one of them is Guillaume Chaslow, who's an amazing uh, researcher and whistleblower who built part of the YouTube recommendation system. And, you know, obviously, how much have you paid for your YouTube account recently? Yep. Nothing, right? Yeah, nothing. So, and how, how is YouTube well, and Facebook, et cetera, worth more than a trillion and a half dollars of market value? They sell attention. And obviously that is the product. It's actually more precisely as Jaron Lanier would say, the ability to just imperceptibly change your identity, belief, behaviors, et cetera, is the product. So the capacity to influence you is the product and they need your attention to do that. And because you know, YouTube is competing with TV and with Facebook for attention, it needs to get more and more aggressive over time. So they'll start adding things like autoplay, et cetera. And a lot of people don't know that 70% of the billion hours a day that people spend on YouTube is driven by the recommendation systems, 70%. It's not like we open up YouTube, there's this blank white box and we just click the videos that we want to watch or type type in the search terms we want. We do that too, but we do that vast minority of the time. Mostly it's the autoplay. So now you imagine, okay, so that doesn't seem so bad. Let's say the AI pointed at my brain gets me to watch one more video. It doesn't seem like such a bad deal. The question is, what is it actually steering people to do? And notice that it's not us that are responsible for what we watch. It's mainly YouTube here because it's got the asymmetric influence and 70% is driven by it. 
And you know, the metaphor we like to give people here is if you were to line up all the trillions and trillions of videos that are on YouTube on one axis, one spectrum, and on the left-hand side of the spectrum, you have Walter Cronkite, uh, calm, rational, Carl Sagan, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Richard Dawkins, whatever you want to say is the sort of calm, rational side of YouTube, you know, the Jim Rutt podcast. And then on the other side, you have Crazy Town, you have the extreme conspiracy theories, hate speech, uh, white supremacist movements, you know, all, all the crazy stuff. Now, any person you drop along that spectrum, starting at any video, anywhere from calm to crazy, when YouTube wants you to watch more on that axis, which, which way is it going to send you if it wants you to watch more videos? It's never going to send you to calm videos because those are not really good for engagement. And so conspiracy theories, extremism, or things that further affirm your existing worldview are the things that get more traffic. So now if you zoom out and imagine a kind of godlike view of the attention economy, you've got 2.7 billion human animals just, you know, in this little farm that's in front of you. And imagine we just tilted the entire attention economy in the direction of the more extreme stuff. And I want people to really feel the, the kinesthetic gravity of what that would feel like as the whole world tilts towards just slightly more extreme things. Uh, three examples of that were in two years ago, if a teen girl was watching a dieting video, and she, what would she be recommended? She'd be recommended anorexia videos. If you were watching a 9-11 news video, it would recommend 9-11 conspiracy theories. And if you were watching a NASA moon landing video, it would recommend the flat earth conspiracy theories. Now, this might sound just kind of funny, like, oh, they, you know, it occasionally recommended flat earth, but it recommended flat earth conspiracy theories hundreds of millions of times. And I know the people who work in the disinformation space who've actually been studying some of the flat earth movement. And I think people really underestimate the damage that it has done. Because if you think about it, if the earth is actually flat and the government's been lying and science has been lying and NASA has been lying, everyone's been lying. It means that all of science is now under question. You can't trust anything that science is telling you if you believe that the earth is actually flat and everyone's been in on it. And so it's like a trust atomic bomb is what we're going to get to hopefully more is, is in conspiracy theories. There's sort of an asymmetric power to fear, uncertainty, doubt, conspiracy theories, uh, et cetera. Yeah, that's an interesting one because, again, you know, my reaction as a science-oriented person is what the fuck would anybody even contemplate something like that? Is it some kind of postmodernist ironic hack or what? But apparently there actually are people who believe this stuff. Pretty amazing. And it's actually been used deliberately. So there's evidence that Russia actually in their information operations uh, actively promotes conspiracy theories. They've actually been going into U.S. veterans groups and actually trying to seed conspiracy theories and doubt into those groups. Rodrigo Duterte, the Philippines authoritarian uh, ruler, there's evidence that in the Philippines, the populist movement, there was a specific use of the flat earth conspiracy theory in the populist movement in the, in the Philippines to dismantle trust uh, in, in the system. When you don't trust things, the main thing you want is someone to keep you safe, uh, like strongman dictators. So they're actually a very effective tool in the arsenal of information weapons. And of course, all sides are using it. I mean, I think a good example on the other side is Adam Schiff, right? He kept saying, I have proof that Trump was colluding with the Russians. Rah, rah, rah. And I knew lots and lots of people who, when asked, and I kept asking him, what do you think the percentage is that Mueller is going to demonstrate convincingly collusion with the Russians? And, you know, I, they kept saying 100%. I would say, based on what I can see, more like 30%. Mm -hmm. And so there's another example of where the same kinds of techniques are, are penetrating into our everyday politics. 
Yeah, no, I mean, conspiracy theories are, are, are being used everywhere, which is why I, you know, I take the Daniel Schmachtenberger view of, of how do we actually reboot sense-making? And especially when you're in a low-trust environment, how do you actually get back to knowing what to trust? And ironically, as the world and the race at the bottom of the brainstem for attention moves towards more clickbait, et cetera, even our mainstream sources of news information, even high-quality publications, and I don't mean necessarily the New York Times, I mean, you know, whatever, take a science magazine, Scientific American, uh, increasingly people have to play into this game because it's a win-lose game. Um, if I don't do the more outrageous clickbaity thing and exaggerate the climate change claim, et cetera, then my competitors will. And so if I want to get people to even look at my thing, I've got to play the game. Yeah. And so that's why these multipolar traps on attention are so pernicious and, and at the root of our, our, our problems here. And, you know, of course, one idea about how to make sense, do sense making, is to do it collectively. That, you know, one of my favorite quotes that I've coined is that humans are approximately the stupidest possible general intelligence. <laughs> as far as we know, we're just over the line in our uh, evolutionary tree. Ma nature is seldom profligate in her gifts from evolution. And one can go into the cognitive psychology of intelligence, and I could go down a long list on how you could make way smarter intelligence than us. So let's assume we're the stupidest possible general intelligence plus or minus epsilon, some small amount. And so if we're going to fight back against these monoliths, we probably can't do it together. And so, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger and Jordan Hall, others have been involved in promoting the idea of collective sense making. And in fact, there's a interesting Facebook group called Rally Point Alpha, where we try to help each other out. You know, we'll float stories and say, what the fuck is this? Right? Is this horseshit or what? Or we'll also deconstruct them and try to point out the, the techniques that are being used to, you know, misinform what we call bad faith discourse. So maybe at least one answer to this problem is to encourage people to join up with other people and jointly use our weak but collective intelligence to make sense of this flow of you know, bad faith and just money-oriented stuff that's coming by us. Yeah, well, I think you know those have, those folks have been right to point out how much of information has had a for-profit motive, which means it's sort of more propaganda than there is actual information. I'd like to do a quick thing of of I think people often underestimate the degree to which we've hollowed out our information environment and our and our sense making. And one thing I like to do to give people as a metaphor for this is, you know, newspapers thought that they were in the truth business, that their product was selling truth. But when these tech companies come along, actually, there's sort of two phases to this. The first phase was when Craigslist came along, newspapers realized actually they weren't in the truth business. They were in the classifieds business <laughs> because class Craigslist came along and ate their lunch. And suddenly they had to figure out how to make the online advertising thing work and do a hybrid business model, et cetera. That was the first phase of newspapers realizing they weren't actually in the truth business. Then the second phase comes along after they figured out how to kind of stabilize after Craigslist came and took their classifieds which is they thought they were in the truth business again, but then uh, what they actually realized is they were in the attention business, not the classifieds business. The reason that they found that out is Facebook and YouTube come along. Imagine two black, black boxes, right? In the black box on the left, you have uh, essentially a news organization, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, et cetera. You've got to pay those journalists $100,000 a year, $200,000 a year. You've got to pay those editors. You've got to pay for the Iraq security details. You've got to pay for the long time it takes to do an investigative story. You've got to do interview witnesses. You've got to do fact checking. You're going to get it wrong. It's not going to be perfect, but there's some kind of notion of process and there's human moral judgment involved. And that is an, an expensive set of inputs to produce what on the outside? Output side, well, an article or a newspaper uh, report, and that generates a certain amount of attention, and then that's sold to advertisers. But 
it comes at a very high cost of paying all those human beings. So then YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, come along. And especially the social media companies say, I have an idea. And I'm, by the way, I'm not saying this is actually how it went, but from a business perspective, this is effectively why those businesses are so successful. Is they said, instead of paying those journalists, what if each person was convinced to be narcissistically addicted to how many followers they had and how much attention that they could broadcast, that they'll essentially be a useful idiot in the attention economy and be publishing and generating attention for free out of their own narcissism because people want to be seen as uh, smarter and uh, more thoughtful and get people interested in their lives, et cetera. So you start posting photos of your breakfast or you start posting news articles and saying how smart you are. So if you think about those two black boxes, the left is a very expensive way of producing human attention. The one on the right, the social media companies, is a very, very cheap way of producing human attention. We're essentially the Uber drivers of the gig economy, creating and producing human attention, essentially at no cost for free, not even getting paid by the companies. But then what that means is that we replace that process of investigation, of fact-checking, of witness reports, of long cycles and human discernment with essentially a bunch of angry people who are yelling thinking that they have the smartest take. So they do breaking news in all caps. They do cynical commentary. They take the least charitable example. They amplify it, build a mob around it and say, look how bad the other side is. And that has become the default information environment. And when you realize that that's actually what's happened and that game theoretically, now the New York Times on the left-hand side has to compete with that, they have to now say, well, let's at least play the clickbait game to even get those articles, you know, to get the same amount of attention. So it's really screwed up the entire information environment. Um, And I think that's what I think people deeply underestimate about what's gone on. Yeah, the game theory dynamic. You know, my friend Brett Weinstein. Good friend. Yes, he's been a friend of mine for years and a great guy. And part of his core analysis of what's going on is that it's the same old shit, right? It's evolutionary dynamics and it's game theory dynamics. And what he always underlines is the one that's doing us the most harm across the board is the race to the bottom. And essentially what you're describing with respect to the news dynamic is, you know, even now the New York Times is full of these stupid ass stories about some British princess or some goddamn thing, right? Who gives a shit, right? On the scale of things, it's a zero. But because they're in the clickbait business, you know, they're forced to fill the front page full of crap so they can compete with Facebook. Well, this is all why the fitness landscape needs to be a fitness landscape that's that's coupled with human values. What, what are the things that, that we actually want the competition to be for? But this is why it's so dangerous. If the competition and the fitness landscape are basically anchored on the resource of human attention, then that's basically reverse engineering of the human psyche to elicit responses out of your nervous system. I think of it like insider trading on your nervous system. I have asymmetric access to know how to do a trade to get the outcome that I want from your behavior, whether it's a habit formation or a belief shift or infinite scroll. We didn't really go through the other examples of the persuasive things. Just to give one more of the auto-playing videos or the infinite scrolling feeds, Uh, Our co-founder at the Center for Humane Technology, Aza Raskin, he actually invented the infinite scroll feature. So that's that thing where you scroll with your thumb and it never stops, right? It wasn't always designed like that. Uh, And the insight comes from a a study that was done, uh, I think it's at Cornell, there's a food lab where they had six people sitting down at a table, each with a bowl of soup in front of them. And two of the bowls of soup had a little pipe underneath that was actually refilling the bowl of soup with more soup as the person drank. And the question was essentially about food psychology and consumption. Do people know when to stop on their own? 
And it turned out that the auto-refilling soup bowls, people ate about 76% more calories and they didn't really notice. And so the point is that our brains, just like a magician, rely on stopping cues to know when to stop. Like there's natural breaks in our experience. And the idea of technology is, well, we don't want those stopping cues showing up because that would have you stop and reconsider what you're doing. So let's actually remove those stopping cues and get you infinitely scrolling in a trance. And then game theoretically, once one guy does the infinite scrolling feed, the other guy has to do it. Then once one guy does the auto-playing videos in the feed to make it more engaging, the other guy has to do it. Once one guy does the filters you know, that show you beautification filters of your face, the other guy has to do it. But the vast set of harms that are emerging from this game theoretic race uh, on the fitness landscape of whatever elicits responses from the human nervous system are basically the worst parts of us. And that's what's so dangerous about what's coming out. So whether it's distraction, addiction, social isolation, extremism, outrage, narcissism, disinformation, affirmation, polarization, these are all not accidents, but natural consequences of the race for attention. And that's what I really hope people get. Yeah, the important thing, I mean, you just almost said it right, but I don't think you said it quite right, which is, you know, these are, you know, the rise in teen suicide is not the intent of Facebook, no. but it is the inevitable result of being caught in a race to the bottom around attention hijacking dynamics. Yes. So if we want to really do something about it, we have to separate out those two things and think about how do we attack the game theoretic attractors that produce the behavior that produce the harm. Exactly. And before we get into that, which is a pretty deep topic and it you know touches closely on the complex systems perspective I tend to take on things, let's take a little sidebar here and something I know you've talked about in the past is let's show what the actual tangible harms are. You know, one could say, all right, so they manipulate me. I don't really give a shit. Fuck it. People have manipulating me for years. I probably drink a little more Budweiser than I should, but I don't really care. What are some of the real harms that are coming out of this race to the bottom around the attention hijacking economy? Sure. Well, we think of it like, you know, prior to there being the hyper object named of climate change or global warming, there's just these different um, ecological problems that feel separate. You know, you have the coral reefs, you have uh, nitrogen runoff, you have uh, species loss in the Amazon, and they might seem like separate problems. But then when you have a model like climate change, you see that they're all connected. So similarly with the attention economy dynamics, people say, oh, like I'm a little bit more distracted. We have this distraction problem, this information overload problem. Then we have this totally separate polarization problem. Then we have this totally separate uh, shortening of attention spans problem, reductions in critical thinking. Then we have this totally separate disinformation, Russian trolls uh, seeding doubt problem. And the point is that these are all one connected system that are also mutually self-reinforcing. So, you know, if you look at some of the harms, you know, our attention spans have been going down. Uh, we did a great episode on our podcast, uh, Your Undiv it's called Your Undivided Attention, with this professor, Gloria Mark at UC Irvine, who's been studying the dynamics of attention and distraction for a very long time. She's found out that it, it takes about 23 minutes, I think, on average to resume focus after an interruption. And we actually cycle through two unrelated projects before we usually get back to the thing that we were doing. This is on sort of desktop computers. But um, she's also found, I think, that, I think the average attention span or focus duration on a screen, these are desktop screens now, is about 40 seconds. But I don't think anybody would say that their attention spans are going up or it's easier to read books than ever. But it's actually harder and harder and harder because we're training our nervous systems to condition them to expect rewards or juicy, you know, exciting things at a more and more frequent rate. Uh, so that's like one of the first areas of harm. Then you have addiction and isolation. So, you know, the more 
the race for attention is, you know, to keep you on the screen, that's basically to keep you by yourself, right? Scrolling. That means disassociated, your chin down, your esophagus compressed at 45 degrees, not really breathing as much, uh, feeling less and less sort of in your body. These isolation dynamics are really costly. Uh, I was just talking with the former Surgeon General of the United States, uh, Vivek Murthy, and he was talking about how he believed that isolation and loneliness are one of the biggest invisible social problems that is not getting nearly enough attention. 18% of people in a big Cigna study in 2018 said they had no one that they felt like they could talk to when they felt alone, which is just horrible. I mean, we really, you know, solitary confinement is one of the worst punishments we give to human beings in jail. And we are doing that essentially as a natural accidental consequence of, of the attention economy. I, my biggest fear, we can go through the harms forever. We have a project called the Ledger of Harms uh, on the Center for Humane Technology website uh, where we try to outline many of these things. But my biggest fear is actually the breakdown of the information environment, the dismantling of sense-making, and the loss of trust in society that emerges where we don't even know what to trust anymore. That's the thing that if we just jump to the chase, we're really worried about. I, I guess I should add one more thing because the children aspect is very important that after two decades in decline of high depressive symptoms for teenage girls, so let's take teenage girls, I think it's 12 to 17 years old. This is in my recent congressional hearing testimony. There was two decades in decline and then it surges up 170% after 2010, which is around the time of mobile social apps like Instagram, Snapchat, et cetera. And so teen suicides and teen depression are up by a lot. And uh, Jonathan Haidt's work in the coddling of the American mind is very, very relevant for that. And it's, it's a really, really serious issue. You know, these are real consequences. Yeah, let's focus back on the, the one you, do, you call out as the core, you know, the breakdown of sense-making. Sometimes I also label it you know, information nihilism, mm. where people are unable to make distinctions any longer between, you know, what is sense and what is nonsense. Yeah. Well, we can go in a lot of different directions on it. I mean, I, I, I think that your listeners have already listened to Daniel Schmachtenberger, hopefully, and, and others so clearly articulate that, you know, again, speaking to someone actually just recently high up in the tech industry about this, you know, we were talking about election integrity and, you know, what do we do to protect the 2020 elections? And it's not like, I mean, yes, we should do more to protect against bad actors, but the amount of our natural information environment now that's just gibberish clickbait and that that's the default information environment, I think that's the invisible thing that's so bad is we, we need high quality sources of, uh, of information and making sense of things. And at the very least, I think we should avoid anything whose business model is chasing attention. As soon as we know that your business model is chasing attention, that just means that there's distortion running all the way through the way that you are publishing information. So things that are more subscription-based, Financial Times, et cetera, are, are less likely to be incurring uh, that kind of damage. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, I was involved in building out a fair amount of the pre-internet and early internet online information services, including way back yonder in 1980, The Source, the very first consumer-oriented online service. And throughout most of that time, most products were paid and were not advertising supported. The very end around, uh, you know, 1996, something like that, AOL started doing a little advertising, but it wasn't the core of the business model until after the 2000s. Do you really think it's possible to put the genie back in the bottle and say no more advertising supported businesses on the internet? Well, it's very, very hard. I mean, it's, uh, 
I think of the advertising business model almost like the fossil fuel era of energy in our energy economy. You know, our entire economic infrastructure is basically directly coupled with the you know, petrodollar petroleum uh, you know, global economy. And I think that you know, much of the growth of the, of the U.S. stock market in the last couple of years has been by the major advertising-based companies. And if you subtract that from the economy, you know, how, how do you do that? That's one and a half trillion dollars of market value at the very least if you take Google and Facebook together who are based on advertising. So I'm not saying it's easy, but we have to be able to name the perniciousness of this business model. I mean, I honestly think I've been withholding from being the outrage machine here, but I, I think this is leading to a kind of dark ages in terms of what we've already been heading into. We've been baking our society for about you know, six, seven years in these automated algorithms of YouTube and whatever good they do now, we have to recognize that for six or seven years, they were recommending conspiracy theories and extremism and outrage and polarization, affirmation, not information. So, you know, the first is to recognize that the true cost of free. We like to say that, you know, free is the most expensive business model we've ever created because it destroys kind of everything else. You know, and as you said, I think on a previous episode of your podcast, we can go back to things like subscriptions. I think you said that uh, on average, Facebook would be $2 a month for a user around the world. And obviously the developing world is different than the, the mainstream world. But we, we've, we've actually dealt with this with things like Netflix. I mean, the average time spent watching Netflix is something like 71 minutes a day. And people pay $11.99 a month. Uh, I think that's the rate now. I can't, for, can't remember for their Netflix account. And, you know, people actually spend almost as much time on social media and they're not paying anything. But would you be willing to pay, you know, if you already pay that for Netflix, why wouldn't you be willing to pay for social media that was actually in service of human values? Yeah, I keep talking about this, as you as you just pointed out, and uh, I don't get anybody to nod their heads. In fact, we did an experiment once for $20 a month, would have brought one into a community, both political and online community. And man, do people hate to pay. And I'm sure you've read Chris Anderson's book, Free, The Future of a Radical Price. Yeah. And unfortunately, even one cent is very different than free. And part of that is that people hate to have to fill out yet another another set of usernames and passwords that have potentially high stakes, i.e. they're connected to their credit card or to their bank account. And gosh, you know, I wish we could, I could figure out a way or somebody else could, I'm getting a little too old to be doing this stuff myself, but that the next generation of entrepreneurs could figure out a way to move back to an era where people pay for value and advertising is not the core of the business model, but I don't see it. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think people like Apple, you know, I always say that Apple is actually one of the interesting actors in this space because their business model is not monetizing your attention. In fact, they're kind of like the government of the attention economy. They choose which apps get to participate in the app store. They choose, you know, the rules and the sort of um, building codes of what an app is and what levels of notification access you get and what you can and can't do and all, all that stuff. They can actually create the kind of payments infrastructure that could be based in, you know, built into iCloud and, you know, for a few dollars a month, basically have dollars automatically flow to things that provide more value. But again, we need to change the fitness landscape of the attention economy. So we're not actually competing for attention at all, but competing for essentially help in our lives. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I use this metaphor sometimes of, I don't know, if you asked me like five years ago, would you pay $11 multiple times a day to get around a city, you know, to pay that much money? And I'd say, whoa, are you kidding me? That's like so expensive. I've got a bike, I've got public transportation. You know, I'm not going to take taxis everywhere. That'd be ridiculous. That's so expensive. 
But I think that Uber and Lyft and the sort of on-demand uh, ride sharing provides such levels of efficiency and value that we can suddenly be the places that we need to be, that people are willing to pay because it actually makes their time go where we want it to go. And I think that that's what we're missing in this economy is that if we actually lived in sort of a time well spent world where, yes, we're paying for you know subscriptions or we're paying for money, but our use of technology aligns with where we want it to go in the world. And we wouldn't be just left with this sort of hyper-distracted, constantly overloaded, polarizing our societies, going into a dark ages. I mean, like, I don't think it sort of should be obvious to people by now that this, this business model is just totally unsustainable. Well, I don't know if it's unsustainable, except for the fact that it would crash society. From a business perspective, it still seems very dynamic. And again, if Chris Anderson is right, consumers have a gigantic preference for free. You know, is there a way for the market to solve this problem, or is this going to require some intervention from the political sphere, do you think? You know, I don't know how it's going to go down, but obviously this might be one of those things where, look, if there's someone who's going to offer a free service that ruins the world and, you know, does public, private profit, public harm and the balance sheets of society, but the balance sheet is so expensive that it introduces a total catastrophe or a crash in that society. If that crash occurs later than the private profit leading up to it, they'll just keep doing it. And game theoretically, if the other guy's offering subscriptions for $10 a month, they can't compete with that. So it'd be much better to you know, create a new fitness landscape where everyone's competing for subscriptions that take us where we want to go. Um, it's very hard to set the Overton window of society so that in culture, all of these consumers understand this trade that you and I have just laid out, right? Most people don't understand these problems are kind of big and diffuse harms. And so people just say, no, I'd prefer to have the free Facebook so I can look at the cat videos and see what my friends are up to. But if we all saw this cost, if we all saw that the true cost of free is totally unaffordable and it kind of sends us into a dark ages. And then we would support a government action or an Apple action to say, hey, look, you know, we're actually only doing subscriptions for now on and uh, it works in this totally new way. And by the way, your time and your, your values are going to line up with uh, what you'd want them to be. Yeah, this is what we call in political science a collective action problem. You know, if we all could somehow make it happen, we'd be better off, but there's no real mechanism to do so. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, we're trying as hard as we can. I think that Congress and other folks are, are getting more awake to the issues and the public. I think right now, the unfortunate thing is the public has a um, kind of a diffuse or, or naive concern about that the tech companies took our data or they're doing something with Russia. We don't really like that, but people don't have a good articulation of these issues. So we need a clarifying public awareness uh, on the problem first before we can take that public action. And of course, you know, the other issue, which I see fairly often, I happen to be, unlike a lot of people in the kind of spaces that I hang out in, I actually live in a electoral precinct that went 75% for Trump in 2016. And so I know a lot of good, decent, solid people who have non-coastal blue perspectives on things, I should say. And you know, part of their resistance is they assume that the executives probably rightly, of uh, these tech firms are blue coastal social Democrats. And to give these people knobs to modify and change discourse, they look at it as a uh, probable censorship of their point of view. You know, it's funny that this is coming up so often among socially conservative politicians that the tech companies are actually censoring them you know, or, or downranking them. But all the evidence points in the opposite direction. There's websites showing the kind of traffic and engagement to Breitbart and, I forget, is it Daily, what's the Ben Shapiro one again? I forgot the name. 
I don't know. I don't watch that shit. <laughs> <laughs> daily, I think it's daily. It's a daily caller or the wire or something. And, you know, they're actually getting more attention than the other things. Alex Jones, by the way, was recommended 15 billion times by YouTube, 15 billion times. It's very hard for people to get their brains wrapped around these numbers. That's more than the combined traffic of New York Times, BBC, Guardian, Fox News, Breitbart combined, right? And so, Anyway, all this is to say that I understand the concern about someone putting their weight on the scales. I think we need something that's more along the lines of the introduction of public broadcast media. You know, in the, I forgot when that was in the 60s or 70s. Uh, we can't have a personalization-based sense-making infrastructure, not 100%. We have to have some notion of a shared set of facts or a shared set of truth. If we don't have that, we're toast because it means that no conversation can ever come to agreement and consensus. And that means that things that our collective action problems like climate change, then we already know the end of the story. We're all dead, you know? And so if we actually are going to take new actions and make new choices that we didn't make yesterday, we need to be able to um, uh, agree, which means that we're going to need to have some notion of a non-fully personalized information environment. Yeah, that's, of course, we talked about ads as one knob. The other is the you know one could imagine outlawing the collection of individual behavioral data in terms of these systems. And how do you see that solving the issues? Just, just to curious and understand your sense making. Uh, well, let's put a sharper edge on it. If Facebook had no data about my behavior, it would be essentially impossible for them to micro-target me. And so the efficiency of the whole cycle would go down substantially, probably by a factor of five. And we'd be getting closer back to the economics of direct response U.S. mail, as opposed to the unbelievably highly efficient micro-targeting that can be done today. So it's essentially a major de-optimization of the cycle. Yeah, but I think one issue is the collection of the data, but it's, it's you know, you have to ask, like, is there a way that Facebook would be unable or could they not have access to your data? I mean, by definition, they have your friends. By definition, they have the posts that we post. By definition, they have to keep track of what gets clicked so they can show you back later the number of likes that you have. So they can't erase that information unless you want to go to a totally ephemeral social network or something like that. The second problem is that people actually prefer personalized news feeds over, let's say, chronological ones. Like we could erase all of the engagement metrics and say, let's just sort news feeds by, you know, what the exact chronological order and time that they posted them. But people don't like that because it's actually really inefficient. And you kind of scroll through a bunch of stuff that's not so relevant. We actually prefer things to be filtered for us. And if the filtering requires uses of data to make that process more efficient, people want that. I think what I'm pushing against is just we can't have a 100% of our information environment be tuned by personalization because it eliminates the sort of shared water, water cooler or public broadcast uh, events. You know, in, in countries, in Nordic countries, I think it's in Finland, Professor Fred Turner at Stanford was just telling me about, he's a great history communications professor, that there's a sort of a 10-minute public news break that's at the center of their soccer matches. So whenever there's a big football game, you know, there's a 10-minute break that everyone is tuning into. And they, they put that at the center of the attention economy and create a sort of shared set of, uh, of information sense-making for everyone. And I think things like that, where we're balancing the personal with the public is what we need more of. 
Hey, let's, I'm just going to follow back up on the idea that we want uh, personalized services. You know, I've experimented quite a bit with Facebook. It used to be you could actually set the uh, setting to show me the feed in chronological order. And I'm not sure it was worse than the Zuck algorithm. But what Facebook does, is they keep changing it back. You know, you basically have to switch it once every two or three hours if you want to keep that. Uh, on the other hand, I have also experimented with turning off history on Google. And you know, for Google search, and at least for me, I much prefer it with history on. I want Google to know that when I type Python, it usually means the computer language and not the snake. So it's, right. it's interesting. And the domains may differ a little bit to what degree the manipulation is actually of consumer benefit versus you know, benefit for you know, presenting willing eyeballs for advertisers and the ability to micro-target. Yeah, I think the principle of data minimization and personalization that is not for the interests of the commercial entity, but for our interests, more like a fiduciary. You know, Forrest Landry and, and, I, and others have kind of articulated the argument of that technology needs to act like a fiduciary to our values based on the fact that there's, there's the degree of asymmetry between its power over us and, and our limited power with it. So if you, if you compare and you lined up these comparisons, you know, you say, let's say, you know, a doctor uh, knows way more about medicine than you do. And when you're there lying unconscious on the operating table, you are fully in the submission of what they can do to you, right? So imagine that doctor's entire business model was just maximizing profit, shareholder value, getting paid entirely by pharma, pumping you with drugs, doing surgeries they didn't need to do. And that was the doctor about to operate on you in that vulnerable situation. We would outlaw that kind of fully commercial relationship of something that has that level of asymmetric power over outcomes that matter for you. Similar with a psychotherapist who's dealing with the very intimate details of your psyche. You know, they could give you very misguided advice. They could lie to you. They could say, oh, and the, to heal that trauma from your childhood, you have to have sex with me. They can say all sorts of things that would be uh, very vulnerable. So we, we have a name for that relationship. It's a fiduciary relationship instead of a contract relationship to recognize the asymmetry of power in those two things. And if you line up those two and the degree of asymmetry, how much do they know about you that you don't know about yourself? How much are you trusting them? How vulnerable are you between a doctor and a patient, between a psychotherapist and their client? And then you ask, how much information does Facebook have about you compared to you knowing about yourself? How about the difference of intimacy between what a, a psychotherapist knows about you versus what Facebook knows about you? You know, Yuval Harari gives this example that Facebook can know that you're gay before you know you're gay based on just the way that you subtly dwell your mouse over ads of the person of the same sex or something than, than the ads that don't have the person of the same sex. And you may not even be aware of that yourself. And so in general, technology is able to make predictions about people that are asymmetric. We would never allow that relationship to be a commercial relationship because it's extractive and unfair to the vulnerable party. So that's the kind of change that actually we can use to get at the business model and I think addresses some of the, the other issues that we've raised. Uh, one, one last metaphor for people that I think is really helpful. Imagine a priest in a confession booth, which is another sort of asymmetric situation where you're there and you're sharing all your confessions, you're sharing the most vulnerable stuff uh, about your life and your, your, your horrible things that you've done and this, your sexual thoughts and all, all of these things, except that priest is listening to the confessions of not just the town, but 2.7 billion people, right? That's Facebook, except they also have a supercomputer that's basically storing and recording all the confessions made by 2.7 billion people and then finding patterns in the confessions so that they can actually make predictions about the next confession you're going to say in the confession booth before you know you're going to say it. 
And so even as you're walking up towards the confession booth based on gate detection and how you're walking, they could make predictions about confessions you're going to make because they have a supercomputer and you don't. We would never allow that priest to have a commercial relationship where they sell everything that they learned about you and the predictions that they can make about you that are going to happen in the future that you don't even know about to another advertiser. We should not have those be commercial relationships. We need them to be a fiduciary or protected relationship. Yeah, I like that. It's a very, very, very vivid, especially as a person that was raised a Catholic. I kicked that particular curse when I was 11, but you know, I understand exactly what you're saying, and it's a very powerful image. One of the things I saw in something that you wrote, or one, maybe it was on the Humane Tech one, is very similar to an idea I had, which was what would happen if we just taxed, say, internet advertising? Very high, say 100% tax on internet advertising. Do you think that would be enough to get the virtuous circle to spin the other way? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, we haven't done a full policy economic analysis of, you know, how to how to do that. Part of this is like saying, okay, we have this bad business model that's you know, we, we want to get people off of it. And one way we've dealt with this in other um you know, situations right now, if we subsidize oil, so we, we keep using it, but what if we start taxing it to a degree that it starts to get more expensive than the regenerative alternatives, then there's a crossing point, And then suddenly the economy flips into the regenerative alternatives. And so the issue here is that all of our technology being advertising backed is essentially parasitic, extractive, and polluting. And we could tax it much like we want to tax fossil fuels progressively, carbon taxes, et cetera, to try to create a transition plan to ultimately fund a transition to more renewable uh, stuff here. But the problem is the, you know, the way we generate energy is, is different than the way we generate these different kind of outcomes with technology. So I don't know the exact way that this would work, but one metaphor I've given in the past to this is what we've done with energy utilities. If you think about energy utilities, they used to have a perverse incentive. Uh, they actually make more money the more energy you used, including the more energy you waste. So please leave the lights on, leave the faucets on, leave the shower on, you know, <laughs> we make more money the more energy you use. And we would actually want to send that nest into your home that actually encourages you with you know points and rewards to keep using as much as possible because that's how the energy management prediction, AI, et cetera, would be incentivized. And we actually successfully went through legislation uh, in the United States, as far as I understand, I think 50% of US states now have what they call decoupling, where they fully decoupled uh, how much energy you use from how much money they make. And the way they do this is based on the seasonal availability of energy. And I'm going to tie this back, by the way, to attention because it's another finite resource. You know, we have a finite amount of attention. We have a finite amount of environmental resources and, and energy. How do we manage this? So the way they did this is, you know, let's say you're sitting there with Con Edison or PG&E uh, using energy and you use some amount of energy and they charge you based on how much you use per performance. But then once you hit the sort of seasonal availability, they want to start disincentivizing you. So they double charge or triple charge uh, to make it more expensive. That stops you from using it. So now you have all these extra profits showing up, but those don't go into the private companies of PG&E or Con Edison. They actually get put into a renewable energy transition fund so that it's collectively funding the transition to the better system. So you can imagine something like this happening with attention where right now, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, et cetera, make more money, the more attention that they get from you. And that's a perverse incentive. It gets extractive at some point beyond the sort of your feeling of uh, being in control in your own agency. And imagine that they can make some money from advertising and attention up to a small point, but then the 
profits and revenue that are above that point get reinvested into, let's say, a humane technology regeneration fund that funds the alternatives and the antitrust legislation and the uh, public education and media literacy, discernment against disinformation, cultural immune system detection, like all these kinds of things to try to build the transition to the infrastructure that we want. We use the profit-making capacities of this uh, current advertising-based infrastructure, which is the most wealthy infrastructure we've ever created, these are the wealthiest corporations in history, to actually fund the transition to something that doesn't destroy civilization. Yeah, there are a lot of details that need to be worked out there, right? When you, you, you try to get government to invest in new technologies, it doesn't necessarily work too well very often. But, you know, there's two parts of it. Even if you just had the tax, right? Let's say, suppose you had just had a tax, 100% tax on internet advertising. It actually lowers the activation energy for a subscription service to be able to compete because the guys with the advertising aren't making anywhere near as much money as they used to be making. Right. So obviously there's there's some more straightforward plans like that. I just because I imagine that this is going to have to be done progressively in some way, much like carbon taxes have to, you know, build up slowly over time. There's different ways of doing it. Yeah, and I will say as part of my prep for this call, I watched your testimony in front of Congress. And I got to say our Congress critters, well, maybe they're trying to get it now, unlike a few years ago, they're still pretty vague on the whole thing. Seems to me. Yeah, there's, you know, there's differences here. You know, we've said in a previous um, episode on our podcast, we, we actually, this was a recent House congressional hearing, uh, Jim's referring to on online deception. It was called Americans at Risk uh, Deception in the Online Age. It was with deep fakes and uh, it was the House Energy and Commerce Committee on Consumer Protection. So I will admit that, you know, many of those members really were not as aware, certainly to the degree of harm that's being created. And they were framing it as a problem of bad apples. There's a you know, we have these really good social platforms that are, you know, the the gems of the American economy and doing good in society. But then we just have these bad guys, these these bad bots, bad Russian bots. We've got these bad deep fakes. We've got this bad fake news content. And we've got these bad dark patterns. We have to get this bad stuff off these good platforms. And the main reframe I was trying to provide is that's not the situation at all. The natural functioning of the social media advertising extracting, uh, attention extracting platforms are to cause these harms. And that's not something that I think the members were aware of. But I will say, you know, something else that which is, you know, if you go back to the Zuckerberg hearings, you know, if I ask you, what do you remember? Do you remember, Jim, about what's the one talking point or sort of memorable thing coming out of those hearings? Uh, truthfully, I didn't even watch them. I did watch his Georgetown speech, I see. but I did not watch him on Capitol Hill. Well, for those who, who were tracking that, the typical answer is there's a one moment where I think it's Orrin Hatch asks Zuckerberg, so Mr. Zuckerberg, how do you make money? <laughs> and Zuckerberg replies, uh, Senator, we sell ads. And that being the most memorable line coming out of what was probably more than eight to 10 hours of hearings, right? It basically makes the public remember one thing which is that government is incompetent, doesn't get it, and they didn't even know his business model, et cetera. How would you ever trust regulation coming from a body like that? And if I were Zuckerberg and if I were Facebook, I would have paid for that moment to happen because it generated the kind of trust imbalance that I would want people to be storing in their brains. And what it makes you forget is that there is plenty of other questions asked by other senators and Congress members that were actually very good. Senator Kennedy from Louisiana had asked some really fantastic questions. Uh, Blumenthal, Warner, the Honest Ads Act. There's a lot of good stuff happening on Capitol Hill. It's not passing, but 
the, the point is there's a distribution of awareness and there's great groups like Tech Congress that are trying to actually bring more people with technology expertise into government. You still are left with this problem, which if we kind of zoom out a little bit, uh, is the problem statement that we at our nonprofit, the Center for Humane Technology, kind of focus on, which is the E.O. Wilson quote that the problem of humanity is we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And that those three operate on different clock rates because the paleolithic emotions in our brains are baked 200,000 years ago. Our medieval institutions update very, very slowly, craft laws very slowly, elect people very slowly. And then our godlike technology is accelerating at faster and faster rates, it's meta acceleration. And it, you know, what happens when your steering wheel is lagging four years behind your, your accelerator, you're going to crash. So some way or another, we have to bring the clock rates of these three things into more alignment and have a better control system, which is why, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger says, I think referencing Barbara Marx, Marx Hubbard, that if we have the power of gods, we have to have the wisdom, love, and prudence of gods and discernment. So that that's kind of the broader situation that when we ask about regulation, it needs to be thoughtful about the godlike capacities that, that we've created. It'd be nice if it could happen. I'm not sure I believe that it can happen within the status quo. I think, as you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger, myself, and a bunch of other, other people are working on something we call Game B, which is to fundamentally reform society in a way to be able to actually deal with these issues. You know, everything I've seen, everything I've heard, I just don't see it. I mean, how are we going to solve climate change with a collective action problem like we have and bad faith discourse, et cetera? How are we going to get, you know, trillions of dollars worth of capital in terms of these advertising uh, supported business models under control, unless we have a fundamental rework of our political and social institutions. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's an enormous problem, but I'll say right now that the technology companies aren't helping. I mean, right now, more than about 50% of, of recommendations about climate change on YouTube are for climate denial videos and climate hoax videos, et cetera. And so when we have polarization and climate denial actually being the default information environment, I mean, Jim, the reason I work on these issues actually, and the, I'm so concerned is I actually think the climate, you know, ecocide issues are, are the thing we really have to pay attention to. And the technology makes it impossible for us to ever come to agree because it's polarizing us into different realities. And that is the most existential issue for solving any of our issues. So this is almost like the infrastructure issue we have to solve to, to address the other ones. Yeah, it's the forcing function, or at least it's, it's the outer forcing function, right? If we don't destabilize our society other ways, you know, for instance, the uh, level of inequality gets so high that we have a violent revolution with the usual outcome of some bad dictator in charge. You know, if we don't accidentally create a, a genetically engineered organism which produces uh, giga deaths, you know, if we avoid uh, nuclear war, then climate change <laughs> will get us sometime early in the next century. So we have a lot of existential risk problems, not just climate change, but it's the one that we know is coming. The other ones are more speculative and you know, lower probability. Yeah. Yeah. We've got, we've got a lot of sense making that we need to do to deal with all of the, the shorter term threats. I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. And is there any hope at all that these incremental approaches driven by the U.S. Congress can get us there? Well, I think that there's what I am optimistic about, and I'm not saying that I'm optimistic about the whole system, but we have to keep going on, is that at least in Congress, what I found is it's not that everybody knows everything we've laid out in the sort of information ecology, destruction, dark ages sort of 
thing and they just disagree. It's actually this that they don't know. And when people wake up to what's actually going on, they're terrified and they want to help. So I actually think there's, you know, we sort of say like, unlike climate change, where you have to convince thousands of companies in hundreds of countries uh, and get lots of governments to coordinate, to change all of this infrastructure to be carbon neutral. You know, in the case of technology, there's probably only about a thousand people in one country regulated by, you know, a couple key states and one federal government to basically make some of the needed changes. So at the end of the day, about only a thousand people, technology leaders, product managers, designers, executives, metrics people, uh, a few regulators, maybe a few strategic litigation cases would need to actually be involved in this process. And so, you know, we sort of have this um, thinking piece that we haven't published that sort of how do we get to humane technology by 2030? And it involves essentially, you know, those thousand people activating in, in these specific ways. Now, that would be interesting. I look very much forward to reading that paper when you guys put it out. Something you mentioned in your congressional testimony, and I I think you've mentioned elsewhere, is the current weakness of third-party fact-checking services. You know, there are two guys on a folding table, basically, trying to hold back the uh, flood of bad faith discourse. A friend of mine, a guy named Dick Brass, who was, I don't know if you know Dick, he's a very interesting guy. He was a senior executive, you know, SVP level at Microsoft. He was also at the same level at Oracle, one of the few people that was somehow managed to be personal friends with both uh, Larry Ellison and Bill Gates. He's got an idea he's been floating around that the big tech companies, you know, the, you know, the handful that you're talking about, ought to get together and fund a hundreds of millions of dollars a year fact-checking enterprise, not-for-profit, engineered rigorously to be objective, transparent, you know, as good as it can possibly be, and then let all these platforms use the output, the signals output from this third-party fact-checking system to start to down-regulate bad faith discourse. Any hope along those lines? Um, Well, I like the idea of funding with hundreds of millions of dollars a sense-making protection layer for society that's shared among technology companies, but I actually think what we really need is to build the kind of cultural sense-making infrastructure, you know, what kind of Daniel and Forrest and Zach Stein talk about of just better sense-making. You, you know, I use the analogy sometimes of back in the 1940s when the United States saw Germany, a country that had the most sophisticated philosophy, science, culture, you know, it was an epitome from, I mean, a, the kind of peak of a civilization in, in Europe, how that culture that was so sophisticated could be the one that would fall into authoritarian Nazi sort of uh, rule. And it sort of broke their expectations about uh, what is psychology? Like we, we thought we knew ourselves. We thought we knew human nature. But the fact that this happened made us question everything. And so there's a surge of interest in psychology. And in the United States, there was a group called the Committee for National Morale um, that was funded to help cultivate uh, what they called the democratic personality, because they didn't take uh, a democratic mindset or a democratic personality as something you know to be taken for granted, something you get for free. It was something we had to grow and cultivate. And uh, people like Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead, uh, I know you had Nora Bateson on this podcast, people like this were, were actually brought together to say, how do we cultivate uh, egalitarian, tolerant, empathetic mindsets? And you know, this this is what in the United States uh, was was developed. There was also a related group called 
the Institute for Propaganda Analysis that helped uh, dissect in pamphlets and in libraries. They, they did lots of programs in schools, but they helped dissect foreign propaganda because they were worried that fascist propaganda would enter into the minds of U.S. citizens, and they had to um, make people more aware of how that happened. And you know, so the, the point now is that we have actually more knowledge than ever, more than we had in the 1940s about how the human mind can get influenced, cognitive biases, behavioral science, social psychology. We have way more encyclopedic knowledge about how the mind is influenced by propaganda than ever. But instead of defending the American psyche, we're actually still behaving in a libertarian way as if each mind is this free instrument uninfluenced by anything. You know, And this, this is the thing that really has to change. So I would love to see $100 million go into uh, protecting that, you know, and I, I gave this metaphor in the congressional hearing that if Russia tries to fly a plane into the country, we have a Pentagon to protect against that from happening in the physical world. In other words, our physical world is governed by institutions and, and protection and systems of, of, of protection. But when you go up a layer into the mimetic virtual infrastructure of the web and, and these private Facebook universes, you don't have a Pentagon. You just lost your protection mechanism. So now if Russia, Iran, North Korea, Israel, Saudi Arabia, all countries who have been found to be running information operations in the United States start dropping information bombs, micro-targeted to zip codes, going into US military veterans groups and sowing disenchantment, we don't have a Pentagon to protect that from happening. We actually have 50 people on Facebook's trust and safety team who are actually not even incentivized to look at the problem until there's public pressure to do so. So this is, this is the kind of thing that I think we really need is a recognition that each society, each open society online is effectively in a global information war that can't be solved. It's going to be a chronic issue. And so we need the kind of public education and sense-making capacity that we haven't had. Yeah, I mean, that would be good. But what is it? I mean, uh, you know, how do you go from a point where there are some people actually believing in Flat Earth and Alec Jones to a point where we have developed a immune system to that? You know, is it a membrane that we keep the bad stuff out? Is it more like an immune system internally where uh, because we work collectively in small groups, we're able to sort through bad faith discourse? Sort of architecturally, how might this actually work? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think anybody who claims to have a clear answer, I would doubt. I think the first thing for me is people have to see this problem as it occurred. Because if you try to say to someone, like, you have to change your beliefs from these crazy conspiracy theories and Alex Jones, that's not really going to work. What you, if, you, if you tell someone, like we did with cigarettes, this is bad for you, that doesn't actually stop someone from, from, from doing it. You have to show them how they were manipulated. And that's why I have always, with the magician frame and the persuasive technology frame, focused this conversation on what is the artificial illusion, the kind of hypnotic spell that's been cast upon society for years and years and years to say, this is how the world went crazy. If we don't actually have, looking backwards the last seven years, a view of how this is actually what happened to sense-making, so we can all see this thing that happened, that gives you the kind of metacognitive perch you can climb up to, to now see these are the distortions that happen in our society. And I think that's the first thing is a collective understanding of the process of how conspiracy theories came to win and how trust came to lose and, and, and all of that. So that's kind of the, 
the first step. And then I think we need an immune system that makes it easier for us to, you know, not pollute the information ecology. We need more deterrence rather than defense. So instead of whack-a-mole, you know, AI super lasers that are looking at shooting down the bad information that's coming in and trying to scan for fake news and trying to catch it at scale, we need more deterrence consequences for if something were to go wrong, you would be held accountable. And that would cause more people to be more careful about how they contribute to the information environment. Uh, This reminds me of things like, you know, in China, for example, they will allow you to post a deep fake, but only if you uh, disclose and label it as such that this is a deep fake. And you can actually go to jail if you publish a deep fake without labeling it as such. And that's an interesting example where, you know, you can post certain things, but you have to take responsibility for labeling it clearly. You could have something like that on Facebook where they could even say, hey, look, there's all these mainstream news channels, whether it's MSNBC or Fox News or Breitbart or whoever, who might publish a deepfake and not label it. And Facebook could say, hey, we're actually going to suspend your account for 36 hours on, on Facebook if you actually post a deepfake without labeling it. So they're not saying you can't post it. They're saying you have to say that this was edited and labeled. And I think we need more preemptive liability and deterrence than we need defense. Uh, Examples you just gave there are things that are well within the power of the platforms to do today. Yeah, absolutely. How close do you think they are to feeling like they're under enough pressure from the political sphere to actually spend some of their resources on things like this? Well, they're not spending nearly enough. I mean, we've given the analogy in the past that if you compare how much Facebook spends on security to their total revenue, it's uh, 6% of the revenue. You compare that to a city you know, Zuckerberg likes to claim that Facebook is a global community of 2 billion people, like one big city. Uh, Well, let's take a city like Los Angeles and how much do they spend on security? They spend 25% of their budget on security. So Facebook is underspending by about four to five times, basically. So, you know, certainly one thing is they could spend spend more money on it. But my, I think, deeper issue is I think that they're not thinking about it the right way because they're focused on catching the bad guys, catching the bad speech. And then they have these free speech issues in the United States where they don't want to get in on it. So I, I think we need to change the conversation from, from free speech to about distribution, context, reach, breach disclosures. Another thing that they could do, for example, is whenever there's an information operation, they can back notify everybody who was impacted. There was, I think, something like 55 million people impacted by a recent uh, Saudi Arabian information operation. I believe that the Russian 2016 information counts uh, operations, that those affected about 150 million Americans. It was 126 million on Facebook. And if you counted Instagram, it's 150 million. But those people aren't even aware that they were uh, affected or impacted. So one of the things that Facebook could be required to do is to back notify everybody who's been affected. And this is be very similar to things like when there's a security breach and Equifax says, hey, there's a breach. Our data got out there of all these users. We have a responsibility by law to notify everybody that whose data might be at risk. Well, we have should have the same thing for information accounts. And the joke is that NPR actually does this, where if there's a correction to a, a story that they have to issue, like a fact check, and they have to go back and notify people, they actually, through their app, have successfully done that. So the joke is if NPR can do it, then Facebook can. You would think. Yeah. Though, of course, there's a lot of kind of subtle distinctions there. What constitutes a sufficient exploit that would require a notification? Right. You know, we all see dodgy crap on our Facebook feeds all the time, but some of it, most of it is not 
objectively bad faith discourse. As you said, it's more people have peculiar framings, which distort the meme space. You know, where do you draw the line? Get into very interesting philosophical questions about, for example, what is an authentic Texas secessionist? (laughs) Because you have a lot of domestic people with ideas that might be more extreme or want to say things. But if I'm Russia, I don't even have to plant new information operations in your country, get people to believe something new. I can just find existing people who believe something that might be more fringe, but I can dial them up by sending 100 Russian bots at them and making them get thousands and thousands of retweets and and, and make them go viral. And so there's this question of, well, Russia's not even, and it doesn't have to be Russia, by the way, it can be anybody. I'm just using them as an example. Uh, my friend Rene Diresta uh, was on the Senate Intelligence Committee and studied the full 200,000 meme Russian data set. So I just happen to know uh, a bit about it. And one of the things that they did go after beyond African-Americans was the state secessionist movements. <laughs> so the California secessionist movement and the Texas secessionist movement. And so you could say, well, what's the harm there? This is the question I hear you asking me, Jim, because those people believe that anyway. Why should we notify you that you've been affected by an influence operation when I was just thinking and believing those things and agree with it anyway? The point is that people feel more disgust and repugnance when they realize that they're the target of something of something that's trying to influence them. And so I think that that's what we have to introduce is the common knowledge that there are large influence operations happening from foreign countries all the time, and that this is not just this sort of safe space. So our, our trust is essentially miscalibrated. You know, we're, we're calibrated to trust things to a certain degree in the physical world, but we should have less trust in the virtual world, and we're not really operating as such. Or at least a different kind of trust. I don't have to worry about somebody uh, robbing me at gunpoint online, but I do have to worry about them inserting perverse memes into my head by repetition, if nothing else. That's right. And I just think that overall people underestimate the cost of what we're talking about and the scale, because it sounds so small and so subtle, right? I mean, you know, like those military weapons that um, you can point it at someone and you can generate sound that only they will hear, or even a sound so loud that it'll actually catch them off guard. There's like these specific weapons that do that. So if you move an inch away from that person, you won't hear anything. That's like micro-targeting, right? I can micro-target information bombs all throughout your society to zip codes or to individual user lists using Facebook custom audiences or lookalike models. I could even take all the flat earth conspiracy theorists in your population, use Facebook lookalike models to say, hey, give me a thousand users who look like that in your society. And I've just found all the conspiracy theorists in your society. So basically, your whole society is up for grabs, and I can flex my fingers and go in and wreak havoc, and you don't even think it's happening. So I just want people to really get the degree to which we are living in a full-on global information war. There's an article that something like 70 countries are now participating in disinformation operations around the world. So it's a very uh, common activity now. And we have to make sure that this is part of the trust environment that we are recognizing that this is the situation as opposed to uh, thinking that it's some kind of conspiracy theory because like i said the person next to you could be the target of one and you wouldn't even know interesting and of course the united states is probably in the top two in spending on disinformation by government actors so i certainly hope so i hope our guys are doing it right I actually think that from what I understand, we we have not been very active on social media, sowing sort of social media disinformation in other other countries. Um, There's uh, some regulations around this. I forgot after Snowden and domestic propaganda to U.S. citizens, there's some rules that I, I, I forgot. Renee knows more about that. Yeah, they certainly shouldn't be doing it in the U.S., but interesting. And of course, now we, we talk about this, we're playing whack-a-mole, we're putting makeup on the skin cancer, et cetera. If we went all the way up the stack, right, and banned all advertising online, banned all use of behavioral data for targeting, the whole problem goes away. 
yeah, a lot of it would really go away. And I think I would love to live in a world where technology is actually back to being a servant and a tool and empowering to the fabric of society. You know, if you go back to Facebook in 2005, Mark Zuckerberg gave a speech saying, you know, what Facebook was. And he said, it's an address book. It's a utility. It's a social utility. That's how he described it. It doesn't have to be a newsfeed. It doesn't have to be a news platform. They only did that because they got caught in the attention game theory of competing with Twitter and the race to the bottom of the brainstem, et cetera. But we could actually, as you said, ban these kinds of things from being the information environments and go back to a more open internet of, of information. That would solve a lot of the problems because we wouldn't be so hooked. I mean, it would solve some of the addiction issues, the teen mental health issues of news feeds. It'd solve the sort of issues of constantly being rated, uh, some of the sense-making issues, personalization, polarization. It's just that that's a radically different society. That's why I always spend a lot of time focusing on the costs and the threats of all this because I think people so underestimate why that kind of drastic action might be needed. Yep. And uh, you know, the more I hear you talking about it, the more we think about it, it strikes me that fighting the war around the edges is a losing proposition. Perimeter defense is always very difficult. We may have to bite the bullet and go to the root causes. That's right. That's right. I mean, the, the perimeter defense might work, but when you're generating, you know, I think Daniel Schmachtenberger's framing on this is when you have exponential tech where the dimensionality or polynomial of, of the um, uh, the different kinds of harm you might be generated is so vast, you can't account for like that level of a polynomial of, of harm and sort of clean it up at the edges. You have to actually deal with it at the, at the source. Exactly. And so that's why we have to have systems that are not generating, you know, that dimensionality of, of harm. And, uh, you know, it's at a point of technology, you know, deep fakes are just the first thing, right? Deep fakes, amazingly, haven't caused nearly as much problems as people thought they would. Maybe we've gotten smarter on how to deal with that. But, you know, the ability to you know, craft human-sounding posts with images embedded and spin up vast armies of fully automated bots, you know, that's going to heighten these problems by the natural growth of the, of the efficacy of AI. Yeah. And I think actually people underestimate uh, deep fakes are now starting to be used in ways that are uh, very real. Uh, recently, Saudi Arabia was found to have generated, I think it was, I think this is right, 55,000 is my recollection, accounts that were actually the first to use the deep fakes for generating fake faces. So if you go to the website, thispersondoesnotexist.com, and you refresh the page over and over again, you'll, new, you'll get a new fake face. And these are faces that look absolutely indistinguishable from real people's faces. Uh, and I believe that this was used by a, an influence operation in which all of the fake accounts and bots looked like genuinely real people using tools like that. The one that's also most alarming, I think, that's coming is it GPT or DPT2. It's the deep faking text. Yes, exactly. So the ability to synthesize text in a way that sounds indistinguishable from you know the actual voice of the person. Think of it like a CSS style sheet where... I could take all of your written writing, Jim, and then I could generate text that, you know, it sort of has all the gymness to the way that you say things, but it's all in text form. And because the dimensionality of text is so much less than the richness of voice or voice synthesis, it's much easier to fake. Then you add things like, you know, when the FCC asked for comments on, um, I forgot exactly what it was, they asked for uh, public comments on some new change in policy. 
And there was later a study showing that something like more than 50% of the comments were actually generated by bots. When you have comment fields that can be spun up with, you know, bot farms by state actors or non-state actors, you know, just spewing fake text everywhere, this is sort of the checkmate on human trust mechanisms. Because when we cannot trust the very things that are in front of our eyes or the text that's in front of our faces, the thing that's ultimately going to matter the most in this new world is what do we trust? And I think that we're going to have more preferences for uh, in-person interactions and real-life experiences, and hopefully back to some institutions that can hopefully be regaining our trust because they'll actually admit some of the ways in which uh, maybe there, there was there was good reason to not trust them in the past. Yeah, GPT two was exactly the kind of thing I was alluding to in the in the growth of AI, and GPT two is overrated with respect to its capabilities. However, I can guarantee a year from now, there'll be something five times better. And a year after that, five times better again. So whether GPT-2 is the actual problem or not, we know we'll have that problem in the short term, which actually uh, reminds me of another top of the root cause stack that doesn't get talked about too much. One of the things that Facebook does, which in general I think is better than the alternative, is they attempt to establish an ecosystem where real names have to be used. However, they intermittently do an okay job of policing that. If real name only was able to be maintained at a higher level of fidelity, some of these exploits would be a lot harder to do. Certainly the idea of being able to spin up bot armies would, uh, would start to go away. Unlike on Twitter, where there is no standard of identity, and there you can assume that bot armies are running amok. Yeah, I would actually say when we zoom out and look at all of these harms, we've already named one of the biggest sort of generator functions for the harm, which is the advertising business model. But the other generator function is the lack of infrastructure that authenticates that people are who they say they are. And there's a notion of a good faith or a bad faith actor. You know, on the internet for the first 20, 30 years, we just assume most people were good faith, blog posts you read, et cetera. That's what's so exciting about it is you just have good faith use of a system. And so everything was positive. Everyone's posting things that are interesting. Uh, No one's trying to sow disinformation propaganda. It's like mostly a pretty open, good faith participation system. But essentially, because the borders are open and there's no digital passport that says you have to be who you say you are, and I can use VPNs to get around whatever system you're asking me to do. I can use US bank accounts to even validate my US citizenship. And this is what you know all the state actors have. The Russian trolls have US bank accounts. So it's really hard to solve these problems when you don't have a mechanism to validate that someone is who they say they are. Real names is one tiny part of it. But I'm thinking about how do we have a whole new identity and trust infrastructure for that? And that's something we really need research into. I know there's some people working on different parts of it. I'm not an expert on that topic, but it it really is one of the things that addresses a huge chunk of these problems. And not addressing is what enables so much of these problems. Yeah, we couldn't even get a national ID card in the United States to handle uh, immigration issues, right? Hard to imagine the fringes, what they would say if we had mandatory, strong, digital, know-your-customer requirements for online. Right. And it's it's so hard. I mean, I say this with a sigh because uh, without this, we're going to continue to have the chronic information wars, the lack of trust, the fact that anybody can so doubt anywhere they want and we won't know whether to trust that person or not. I mean, that's... That's what's so hard. And, and if you keep in mind, people do the kind of long con thing too. So if you have a trust system that says, well, based on the fact that the patterns of behavior for this user have looked good for a while, 
um, and this account creation dates from 2009, maybe that means that they're a trustworthy account, right? They, they can't have been here for this long. I would be more skeptical if the account creation date was last week during the Mueller report coming out or something like that. But it turns out that there's actually whole markets, dark black markets, where you can buy vintage yep, yep. <laughs> um, accounts, right, from that were create, have creation dates of 2009, 2010. And so this is why we really do need some kind of new authenticated identity infrastructure for any kind of social uh, technology. That self-validates over time. And, you know, it's it interesting. I, I laugh because I joined Facebook a little late, 2009, I think it was. And the first week I was on there, I said, I hope the CIA is starting to grow some accounts to be used for the background story for their agents, because otherwise this is going to break the whole spy business. And uh, of course, sure enough, they were they, they made the same inference and started growing those legends. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, they had to grow accounts to provide legend uh, in social media. And as you say, you, you can go to the dark web today and, you know, buy or sell, you know, a well-aged, reasonable looking identity. So age alone and the kind of soft network generated cues that Facebook provides aren't enough. Right. And this comes down to the dimensionality of trust signals and cues that we can use because, you know, you're left with, well, do they, what does their Facebook profile photo look like? Do I have a mutual friend with them? And what's the account creation date? If there's only three cues to go off of, that's not a lot. And when in the real world, we have many, many different cues um, and we have whole body language and uh, there's lots of ways that can ha get hacked too, back to the magician background and you know, con artists. But I think we have to think about how can we increase the dimensionality of trust signals um, to better reflect the kinds of things that, that we care about. Well, Tristan, that's all been very interesting, but it kind of leaves us at a dark point. You know, we have multipolar traps. We have game theoretical races to the bottom. We have a political process that doesn't really seem to be capable of dealing with the problems on a timely enough basis. And we have platform companies with incentives that aren't necessarily aligned to solving these problems. Do you see anything good out there? Some new green sprouts that are hopeful signals that maybe we are learning and are making progress on these fronts? Yeah, absolutely. And, and not that this is an easy transition to make, but I think, you know, when the thing that's keeping you warm is a tire fire that's also polluting your, your air, you're still not going to walk out into the cold desert if you don't know that there's something else you can go to. So it's really important to talk about the fact that there is a way to do this differently. Um, but we have to have a, a, you know, a real deep understanding of what the failure modes are, what the mistakes we made are in how we got to the environment we're in today. So you know, the main thing that we focus on with humane technology is that technology can be designed to be almost ergonomic to our paleolithic emotions, to be much more aware of how our um, you know, emotional systems and our cognitive biases and our choice-making systems can get distorted. So you know, if you think about what world we want to be heading into going into 2030, um, what is the role of technology? Do we want a future where most of our time is spent on screens, disembodied, disassociated, et cetera? Do we want a world where culture has been basically hijacked by technology? Or do we need a world where there's a sort of primacy to culture, human values, and social life? Meaning you know, that we actually have a kind of um, human-based discussion process. We have you know, human choice making. We're not just sort of making choices through screens. So if you zoom out and say, okay, well, what would that would look like? Well, there's, let me give you some examples of things that might uh, embody that. Siempo uh, was an Android OS home screen launcher that had mindful features. So part of the insight they had was, hey, 
you know, when there's color, when you have a color home screen, it's kind of addictive. Why don't we make the home screen grayscale? Hey, instead of, you know, doing notifications one at a time, why don't we do a batch them all and deliver them at a certain time during the day and have a distinguishing uh, kind of notification for things that genuinely need your attention. There's something called breathing.ai, which actually uses a camera to track your breathing and heart rate variability and dynamically adjusts uh, the color and fonts. This might sound like really small stuff, by the way, but what I'm doing is building up a stack saying, okay, well, how would it work from the foundation of the thing we're holding in our hand and the disruption to attention, cognition, memory, breathing, uh, social isolation, addiction, uh, polarization, mental health? We have to kind of ask like all the way up from the bottom, all the way up to the top, how could this work? So those are the two examples. You can imagine things like uh, habits being baked into the way that your phone works. So instead of just, you know, when you open up your phone and it's not really aware of your broader life goals or what you, how you want to wake up in the morning, it just sort of says, here's your last social media app that was open when you wake up in the app switcher. Instead, have modes where when we wake up in the morning next to our alarm, it sort of lets us create that space and say, what do you want to do? And you could say, I want to pick these habits, whether it's meditation or, um, you know, stretching or just 10 minutes of silence and actually design the interface around that. And things like Headspace or Waking Up, uh, the Sam Harris Meditation app or Calm.com would kind of fall into those kinds of categories. Uh, instead of being lonely and not knowing where your friends are and feeling addicted uh, all the time, you could have things that help you find out where your friends are and when there's sort of serendipity around you baked into the way that phones work. Apple with its Find My Friends feature, which they, I think they renamed Find My, could be baked more directly into the way that the operating system works. So instead of just an app switcher, it could be like essentially a GPS for where, where people are or which people are available and create more salient, easy ways to signal our presence and availability to reconnect with people. Because we all know that moment when you're feeling kind of alone and it's really hard to reach out to friends because you just kind of are in a dissociated state. It's really hard to knock yourself out of that state. But if there's lighter weight ways we can mark ourselves as available, uh, you know, that's that's like a step in the right direction. Things on sense making and finding congruency and agreement. Uh, I know, Jim, you've been participating in letter.wiki, which is a really great service for long form, almost like, you know, letters between the founding fathers, debates between public intellectuals and big thinkers about the right framing of big topics. So instead of saying climate change is just going to kill everybody, actually have a debate about climate change versus economic growth. And so that's been a, a great service. There's something called vTaiwan, which is the, uh, or poll.is, which is Taiwan's sense-making platform. So the digital minister of Taiwan, Audrey Tang, has this platform that basically lets people draft statements about how some matter of public society should be resolved. And they can respond to other suggestions by either agreeing or disagreeing with them. And when there's a kind of a rough consensus, it tries to gamify and, and enhance consensus, in other words. So that's a really interesting example I recommend people check out. I could go on and on. I mean, there's there's other things like Artery, which helps people find living room concerts for, so it's like an Airbnb, but for, for basically renting space out for more physical events. If one of the problems of technology is it's hollowing out our physical world, hollowing out libraries, public spaces, town squares for culture, et cetera, what if technology were essentially instrumenting that? And Artery is something that, that does that. HipCamp helps people do sort of Airbnb, but for online camping spots. Uh, this is sort of hard to organize into a list because there's so many different things, but there are examples of technologies that are actually caring about and tending to uh, the social fabric and the physical spaces around us and caring for and tending to, you know, the ergonomics of, of human biases and cognition and trying to ask, how do we make it really work to empower um, the kind of meaningful choices that, uh, you know, Joe Edelman talked about in one of your recent podcasts. So those are hopefully some examples of things for people to, to check out if they are interested.
Yeah, that's good. It's certainly important that we don't despair, that uh, even when things seem like they're overwhelming, there are ways to make progress. And those are some good examples. Yeah, absolutely. And just one last thing is, I think one of the other things we have to look at is just making sure that the expertise guiding the decisions and how we make technology matches the expertise that would be needed if you're affecting things like a social fabric. You know, I think about this like, should economists be the ones running the infrastructure that are going to affect, let's say, the viability of the pollinators, the decomposers, uh, and the web of life if they don't even know what pollinators or decomposers are? So we have to have a kind of match between the people who are running the management infrastructure and the kind of substrate that actually creates the foundation upon which the economy can stand. So similarly with technology, can we have 20 to you know 30-year-old computer science trained, STEM trained engineers making decisions about how social fabrics and identity and children's development work? No, if they don't understand those things, then they should be instead making technologies that make space for, you know, essentially the, the natural brilliance of children's development and social development, et cetera, to occur outside and make sure that the technology is not taking over parts of society it doesn't fully understand. I think that's another area in terms of expertise matching that we need to think about. It's not been in the front of mind of entrepreneurs starting companies, having been one. I know, you know, we're just trying to figure out how to build a product that will sell and how we can develop a bigger pro-social mission. Yeah, I think that's a, a beautiful dream. We'll see how we can make it happen. Let's make it happen. Well, Tristan, thank you very much. I'm really glad there are people like you in your organization, uh, which, repeat for me again, the name of your organization? The Center for Humane Technology. And your uh, website? humanetech.com. And if people are curious to learn more, I definitely recommend checking out our, our podcast, Your Undivided Attention, where we explore some of the point issues and walk through it. All right. Thank you again. It's been great to have you on. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been great to be here. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.